Hi, I'm Barry Hamaguchi. And I'm Jason Marcos. This is Flop Redeemer, the weekly podcast where we discuss the stories behind our favorite pop flops and why you should give these songs a second chance. This week, in a continuation of the episode where credit is due, we're making the case for R&B legend Patti LaBelle's original version of If You Asked Me To, later popularized by Celine Dion. Bring us back, Jason. All right, and we're back. So... Today, I'm going to talk about Patti LaBelle's 1989 song, If You Asked Me To, which is a single off of her ninth solo studio album. It was also featured on the soundtrack of the James Bond movie License to Kill. Um, It was only a moderate hit for her, but it becomes a huge smash when Celine Dion covers it three years later. So who is Patti LaBelle? And, you know, it's... Look, the fact... Look, all of you listeners... You should know who Patti LaBelle is. But if you don't, I mean, she's wait, didn't some people don't again, our weekly, our weekly Eric reference. Uh, Yeah. So Eric, our friend Eric did not know who Patti LaBelle was. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, so like Patti LaBelle, three time Grammy award winning singer, actress, um, entrepreneur slash sweet potato pie maven. Mm. um, Famously, Um, she's often referred to as the godmother of soul. So, you know, like everyone has, there's the queen of soul, there's the queen of hip hop soul, there's the godmother of soul, there's the queen of rock soul. We're going to run out of titles for people. There are a lot of queens and um, there's not a lot of peace in the kingdom. So, you know, she's, she's, to me, she's got this really like strong, like auntie energy. Like she always has. Oh, she's Um, lovely. Right. She's lovely. She's um, one of Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Singers of All Time. She's in the Grammy Hall of Fame with her group LaBelle, um, which we'll get into. She's won six NAACP awards and 13 other Lifetime Achievement Awards, you know, across her career. Can I interject really quickly? Yeah. I just remembered this, too. um, Because Wendy Williams, you know, she tries to, like, curry favor with everyone. Like, Uh she tries to curry favor with Aretha and Patti LaBelle. And notably, I remember that, um, you know, she interviewed Aretha and Aretha is the queen of queen of yeah. soul. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then um, she had Patti LaBelle on in the early days of her show. And she's like, everyone, it's the queen of. And then she's like, I think she says entertainment. <laughs> Patti LaBelle. Like you can tell, like she was trying to say queen of something and she realized uh-huh. she couldn't say queen of soul. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, um, you know, it's funny because. um I have this picture that our friend Aaron gave me um, and it's from sometime in the mid two thousands where Beyonce performs with Tina Turner uh, at the Grammys and Beyonce in the, in the, in the, as she's introducing Tina, she calls her the queen and it's, you know, harmless, you know, and, and I mean, Tina Turner is a queen and she's amazing. They go on, they do a proud Mary Beyonce famously, stomps on tina turner's foot in the middle of the performance and tina like yowls you can see it in her face like it's (laughs) hilarious and um so i have a picture from this performance aretha franklin was so put out she issued a statement saying there is one queen i know they didn't mean to slight me but i love beyonce anyway and you know congratulations to the grammy and and it was so petty but like she sent a fucking fax statement like that's what she did and and like didn't say queen of soul and tina was like i'm the queen of rock soul like she must be tripping she thinks there's only one of us 
Yeah. Her ego must be so big. Like, that's what Tina said. And so it's I like, love Tina. You know, Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, like HRH, is like <laughs> not sending out notices anytime anyone. No, uses no, the word she queen. doesn't. No, if you're an actual queen, like, let it go. But, um, you know, so she's over the course of her career, like, she's become famous for her hair, her gowns, these capes that she wears. Um, I think they deserve awards all their own. Like, if you Google Patty LaBelle hair, like the things you will see, it's amazing. Um, gravity defying. She takes cre- she takes a little bit of credit for like the the drag stylings of like Lady Gaga. Yes, yes, yes. really. And you know what's really crazy? Um, when we talk about LaBelle, they performed on like the gay circuit like back in the day because their their costumes were like so outlandish. They had been like this more traditional R and B group, and then decided to take it in a whole other direction once they mm-hmm. disco- you know once once they started like working and being around like David Bowie and um Elton John you know so so yeah for sure um you know so so you mentioned this in 2011 oh i i'm sorry i i did the opposite of burying the lead i <laughs> i unburied your non lead by making it the lead uh i mean it's very berry so um <laughs> you know <laughs> So in 2011, I saw her. I got a chance to see Patti LaBelle on tour um, at the Gibson Amphitheater at Universal City, or I guess it was called the Gibson Amphitheater, um, with our friend Eric. And I was so excited. Like, I'd never seen her. She was a legend to me. Um, and But no one would go with me because they're like, I don't know. We, they're like, Patti LaBelle? Like, whatever. You know, I've always been an auntie. I went to see Anita Baker. We went to see, you know, like, it's like I go to these shows that people are like, okay. Um, I just don't like hand. driving out to those amphitheaters. <laughs> what a pain. I mean, it's enclosed. It was, you no, just park I mean, at Universal you know, all those City. places you have to like drive to and park. And... <laughs> I wanted to see Patti LaBelle. Anyway. All of them. Hollywood so I... Bowl, Ford, Rose Bowl. Parking in there is nightmare. Okay, this is literally in a parking structure at Universal City Walk, so Just it's not keep, hard. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> um, I took my friend. I took our friend Eric, and you know, he he was always down to go to whoever. But he sits. We sit down, and I had bought like the program and everything. I was so excited. We sit down, and just before she goes on, he looks at me and he says, "Did she sing Natural Woman?" <laughs> and I just. The daggers in my eyes. I was just like, I remember. No. You, I remember you coming back, and you were agog. You were the definition. You were the definition of agog. I was like, that is Aretha Franklin. This is Patti Labelle. Like, what are you? No. Anyway, she was thrilling. Um, she is known for her live shows um, and sort of being over the top. But just, like, this amazing, she, like, hurls her body into these performances. She, like, always kicks off her shoes. She threw the mic. She picked up the mic stand and threw it at one point. Um, She, like, dropped the mic and finished a song with, like, unmiked. And you could hear her throughout the arena, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it was amazing. Um, She's she's just amazing. Um, She got her start in the 60s as part of Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, which... Interestingly enough, because I know you always follow all this shit, um, Cindy Birdsong was part of that group. Cindy ends up leaving in 1967 to join the Supremes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, she went from being overshadowed in one group to overshadowed in another. Like, but she rode that she rode that Supremes train 
to some some big success. So yeah, she did. She did. She did. I mean, it, it worked out fine for her. Um, you know, the the in the 1970s, Dusty Springfield of all people suggested to her manager Vicky Wickham that she manage the Bluebells. Um, she does, and you know. So there's three of them left, Patty, Nona Hendricks, and Sarah Dash. They form the group LaBelle. They update their sound. They go from this sort of 60s soul sound to funk, rock, psychedelic soul. I mentioned, you know, they were heavily influenced by David Bowie, um, also influenced by Elton John. They went on tour with The Who. Like, they they really sort of changed kind of like, they were sort of doing something very different at this time for a black girl group essentially mm-hmm. right um they started donning outlandish makeup spacesuits glam rock stuff um is is cool like they 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 really changed their sound in 1974 they release lady marmalade and um it's a huge hit it goes number 1 billboard hot 100 chart and sells over 1 million copies and this is key because you know we were just talking about dd work we're talking about dion work we're talking about you know, artists, black artists in the 60s, 70s who, you know, they might have been successful, but very like had a really hard time crossing over to the mm-hmm. pop charts. Lady Marmalade hits number one on the pop chart It's like one of the most successful songs of all time. Um, they become the first pop act to play at the Metropolitan Opera House, um, which was kind of cool. Um, and they make the cover of Rolling Stone. So, you know, it's really interesting. Um a side note, so from a, a queer side note, <laughs> um, Dusty Springfield, which I did not know. I, I mean, I love Dusty Springfield, but like I didn't really know her that much. Um, she was openly bisexual at this time. Like, mm. I, mean, I mean, through the rest of her life, but like unusual for the time. She was open about it. And mm. Vicky, the manager that she shared with LaBelle, ends up becoming Nona Hendrick's partner. Um, mm. So, you know, I didn't realize because I love Patty, but like, I didn't get this much into her history when I was growing up, but like she was, you know, very queer friendly and like um, had always been. Um, Lavelle, LaBelle was very popular on the gay circuit. And in, in fact, they used to play at the Continental Baths with in New York, which was where um, Barry Manilow and Bette Midler kind mm-hmm. of broke out. Right? Famous archival footage of Bette Midler and Barry Manilow as her piano player. Yes. Yes. So, you know, they've always been around here. Um, an additional side note. So Dusty Springfield, again, who I love, when she when she found out she was dying of cancer, she was super anxious because she had this cat that she'd adopted and he was like 13. And she was super terrified that like when she died, the cat would like be put into a shelter. So she wrote him into her will. The cat's name was Nicholas. She wrote him into her will and specified like that, you know, his food come be flown to England from from the US, that he lived in a seven foot cat tree, that he would always be live, sleeping in a bed like <laughs> that was like her nightgown and her nightgown and her pillowcase. <laughs> so they, the smell would be there. Okay. And um, so when we, I tell you, Barry, this, this, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, when I tell you that I have never related to someone more. Um, <laughs> this is something that I think about with my cats. Okay. So wait, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just catching up. This had nothing yeah. to do with Patty LaBelle. No, just that Dusty Springfield is the one who like 
basically put them together with the manager, Vicky, because Dusty okay. Springfield's manager, Vicky. Yeah. Well, I got the, she, I got the yeah. queer connection with, because yeah. Nona Hendrix ends up with. Yeah. But I was like, I was waiting for the part where it's like, and Patti LaBelle took her cat. <laughs> no, I love, I love these women who would okay. be my favorite aunties, basically. Okay. Right. So Patty's one of them. So, you know, Lady Marmalade, Lady Marmalade is a huge hit. Um, but they never have additional pop success. Like nothing ever breaks through in the same way. Mm-hmm. And they end up breaking up two years later. Patty goes on her own and she's, you know, she's trying to find solo success, right? She releases seven solo albums between 1977 and 1985. None of them were huge, but some of her signature songs come out of that. You Are My Friend, one of her signature songs. Um, And then in 1983, she releases this album called I'm In Love, and it starts to turn the tide. There's a song on that album. It's called If Only You Knew. Mm-hmm. And it's it becomes her first top 10 R&B hit. It is one of my favorite songs, my favorite karaoke songs. Um, it also hits number 46 on the Hot 100. So after seven albums, you know, she's it's like, oh, maybe she's maybe trying to get a little success here. Or maybe she can get a little su- crossover success. But for the most part, even though this is a hit, it's solidly an R&B hit, right? It's it's not attracting the other audiences um, or not not in a huge way. Then she comes out with Love, Need, and Want You, which, same album, it becomes the second top 10 R&B hit. That ends up, you probably know this from Nelly's song Dilemma with Kelly Rowland, um, you know, where Kelly famously opens up her side, her sidekick or whatever, and she's mm-hmm. texting Nelly into an Excel spreadsheet. Yes, um, posted to our Instagram. Yeah, I will. And No, I, I posted it to our Instagram. Oh, yeah, you did. You did already. In our yes, Kelly Rowland week. I didn't yeah, know this. I didn't know this song though until you you mentioned it to me that this I didn't know that that Nelly Kelly song yeah. used yeah. basically the entire hook of this Patty LaBelle song. It's the exact same. Yeah, it's yeah, the completely. whole hook. And and I, you know, I had forgotten that because I, I mentioned in our Kelly Rowland Week episode, um, you know, Patty LaBelle shows up in the video playing her mom for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, that's because they used her song. Yeah. <laughs> Easter egg. She probably Crazy. wrote it into our contract. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the success of these two songs, If Only You Knew and Love, Need and Want You, helps make I'm In Love her first gold album as a solo artist. So about 20 years into her career, she's maybe truly starting to see some solo success and yeah. some recognition. It's an um, interesting thing where with Patti LaBelle, I don't often think of her as a contemporary with a lot of the 60s mm-hmm. soul singers because, yeah, like she... She wasn't really doing Had that. these yeah. like, sporadic hits until like later. And that's kind of the thing with Patti LaBelle that like it's sort of uneven. She's revered for her longevity, her 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 contributions, but like her output has been kind of spotty. Right. Like, yeah. it, you know, the, the material is sort of uneven. And so, you know, she's revered Like she, her live shows are, are spectacular, but it yeah. does it translate into, you know, success. It's unclear. So so she capitalizes on these two sort of mild crossover hits um, by releasing two songs on Eddie Murphy's Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack. So if you remember Be- Eddie Murphy, Beverly Hills Cop, that was a huge 
movie, mm-hmm. right? In the 80s, in 84. Um, she has two songs, New Attitude and Stir It Up. And New Attitude, which is probably one of her most famous um, like sort of pop songs of the 80s, mm-hmm. um, goes to number 17 on the Hot 100. So this is like an actual hit, right? Um, becomes her first bona fide pop hit as a solo artist. She follows this pop success with two TV appearances. She does Motown Goes to the Apollo. Um, and she also performed on Live Aid in 1985. So uh, she performed on the Philadelphia Arena, the John F. Kennedy um, Arena in Philadelphia. There were 90,000 people there. Obviously, this was broadcast to the world. Um, she performed in her set um, after Madonna, Led Zeppelin, Duran Duran, and right before Hall and & Oates and Mick Jagger and Tina Turner. So, like, these two TV appearances, like, kind of signal her arrival as a pop star. And it's, you have to remember that, like, you know, we know Patti LaBelle, like, now kind of as this legend. But, like, this was her. I mean, like, she's been around for forever. And so, like, just popularly, like, you know that she's someone, right? Like, you know, you see her, right? Like, that's what I mean. Again, I mean, like, like Linda Ronstadt, I know more about, like, my impression of Patti LaBelle than mm-hmm. I really do about her entire catalog of music. Yeah. You know that I, yeah. they're big, but you, again, to your point about like Patti LaBelle having these lulls in her career, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's interesting because like Linda Ronstadt also had lulls in her yeah. career. And it's an opportunity that I don't think that recording artists are given today. You're not allowed yeah. to have a lull anymore. So it's, it's actually certainly not of, 20 years. It's kind of great that these artists were given the time to develop and experiment and try these different sounds like Patti LaBelle yeah. did. Yeah. Know, her sound evolves drastically between the sixties into the eighties. She's mm-hmm. moving with music and mm-hmm. it's great that artists were able to do that and still mm-hmm. have a chance. Whereas today yeah. I don't think you do. I mean, to be, to be fair, she did have to jump labels a few times, you know, to kind of like over this course, right? Like, because they were trying to figure out what to do. Cause like she has Patti LaBelle, if you know her, has this huge, huge voice. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't always, I mean, it makes her a spectacular live performer, but like it doesn't always translate in the recording studio to to like a formula that works. You know, it's funny to bring up like an Aretha Patty rivalry discussion about like Aretha having an iconic voice. I think most people think of Aretha Franklin's voice as like the iconic voice of soul music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not Everyone thinks of Patti LaBelle's voice. I almost prefer Patti LaBelle's voice because it has a level of clarity and control that I don't think Aretha always had. I think there was something wild and unexpected about Mm -hmm. Aretha that made it thrilling. Mm -hmm. But there's something different about Patti LaBelle's voice that feels so sure-footed. Like, I know I can depend on Patti LaBelle, even if she's flailing around, even if she's kicking off her shoes, even if she's throwing a mic stand. Mm -hmm. There's a clarity. Her voice is crystal clear. Yeah. And I think Patti would agree with you. I think, like, I think about, like, to bring a figure skating analogy into this, there's figure skaters that you can depend upon, but that aren't artistically thrilling. Skaters that can land their jumps, just look so graceful, so poised, but it's not thrilling. And then you have Midori Ito, the 1991 world figure skating champion, who in the 1991 Skate America free skate, 
she jumped so big, so hard, she jumped straight out of the rink and she crashed <laughs> through the boards and into the camera pit. That to me is like the Aretha Franklin version. No, where well, you're, be, you're kind of expecting, I mean, you feel that anxiety of like, is this the time that Aretha is going to crack or her vocal is going to fall over the edge? She, I see she her more as Surya Bonnelly. She doesn't really, she doesn't really do that. But in in contrast, there's something about Patti LaBelle that I always felt like her vocals were so dependable and mm. yet still big and still thrilling. Mm, mm. She has, she has, there's a, there's a control there. I mean, Aretha has control, but it's, it's, it's a, in a deployed in a different way. And there's, there's a, there's something to the, to the clarity of tone. Like, you know, you were talking earlier about Dee Dee Warwick versus Dion Warwick versus Linda Ronstadt and like the kind of grit that is in mm-hmm. your voice um, that's inherent in their voice and how the grit level sometimes like keeps you in one area versus mm-hmm. another. And I think Patty has a lot of soul, but she doesn't always have grit. She and doesn't. the lack of the grit allows her in some cases to transfer, translate better into pop yes. than right. And especially to some pop audiences, especially yes. in the eighties. Because interestingly, I feel like I can feel anger and aggression from Patti LaBelle's vocals without grit. Well, what's funny is if... In, in the way the, that, like, was, we were talking yeah. about, like, Linda Ronstadt or Dionne Warwick being songbirds, and even when they're singing stuff that's a little bit angry, I never really feel the aggression or the anger. Patti LaBelle can soar with a crystal clear vocal, mm-hmm. but... I can tell she's mad about something when she well, wants to be mad. You know, <laughs> in, in in the song "If Only You Knew," I was digging into that because that was her first sort of mild pop crossover hit, mm-hmm. and um, you know, to the point about the clarity, the producers when she was recording that album, they asked her to smile while she sang because it made her voice more clear. Like hmm. there, like and 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 it, the, there was something about the tone that changed. And that makes sense, but like for her specifically. And they also had her sing most of the song in the mid-range of her voice. And she only goes into the full-throated soprano in the last in the final choruses. Hmm. Whereas maybe someone like Aretha would have just gone there from jump. Hmm. And and you know, to the point about like what makes an R and B song a pop crossover is thinking about that construction and what the mm. pop audience is expecting. And we'll get into that in a little bit because it, it it's the eighties is an interesting time, right? Like for pop music um, because after, so after she, she, you know, she's, she's having this sort of breakout success being on live aid, like kind of cemented her, right? Because she's with all these icons. Mm-hmm. Um, she releases her, eighth studio album after this called The Winner in You and that features the lead single On My Own which was a duet with Michael McDonald it went to number one on the pop charts um, becoming and it becomes one of the signature quiet storm anthems of the 80s there's that like synthy adult contemporary pop rock ballad sort of genre right I mean Um, this is the era when we I feel like we first hear the term like easy listening as yes. it pertains, pertains to like radio play. But, but what I think is interesting. So, so it propels the album to, to platinum status and it remains to this day, her best selling and highest charting album in mm-hmm. her career. 
What I think is interesting is this is Quiet Storm, adult contemporary, the easy listening, the sort of soft rock with these big vocals. Yeah. It's, it's your sort of where you start. Uh, it's your dentist's uh, reception area yeah. in the 80s. This is how R&B and soul singers start getting like, it's like the way they can get airplay on pop radio. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about like Patty Austin, she also did a, a, a duet with Michael McDonald. Um, um, Anita Baker, baby, come to me. Anita Baker, like it's it's this. It like Luther takes Vandros. the soul, the soul instrumentation out, and the vocals are still big, but they're sort of there's a lot of reverb. There's like this the guitar. It like. They're like writing. They're riding it. the. They're like riding the wave of this instrumentation. Yes, in a way that like, it makes it palatable. I yes, hate to say palatable, like, but no, but it's it, true. It 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 really highlights the versatility of their vocals. Yes, it highlights the versatility. It allows them to sing with a soul vocal, but in a way that's not threatening, mm-hmm. because it's in a musical environment that they understand, that the audience understands. Right. Or that the audience sees as pop popular. Right. It's it's not taking them out of their comfort zone. They're not listening to, you know, we'll get into I keep saying this. We'll get into this. They're not listening to like, quote unquote, black music. Yeah. Which like many people just wouldn't consider them. They wouldn't go to the urban or, or whatever radio station. All of this brings me to my song, If You Ask Me To, from her ninth album, Be Yourself, in 1989. Um, It is the first single from Patti's album. It's written by Diane Warren. And just for some context for what other songs, like, you know, If You Asked Me To. Like, you know this song, but you probably know it from Celine Dion. Um, In 1989, Diane Warren had also written um, Shares, If I Could Turn Back Time as well as Just Like Jesse James. She'd done Taylor Dane's Love Will Lead You Back. And Tina Turner also released The Best, or simply The Best, in 1989. So if you're thinking in terms of pop landscape, you think of If You Ask Me To, and when you listen to this song, Patty is doing... I mean, this is solidly... This should be a huge hit. This is what is popular at the time. These big vocals, these, like, brassy women, like, you know, like... Just putting it all out there. Um, it's got that late 80s pop production, the keyboards. I I wrote, like, you can feel how big her hair is just <laughs> by listening to the song. And when you watch the video, you'll see how big her hair is. Um, it's got that signature Diane Warren 80s, 90s power ballad sound. There's, like, kind of soft but, like, prominent electric guitar licks throughout. There's a there's a bass in there that's reminiscent of If You Ask, or, sorry, If I Could Turn Back Time. Diane Warren was really about the ifs at this time. Hmm. Like, if you did this, if you could turn back time, if if you asked me to. Queen of hypotheticals. Um, yeah, she was always just asking questions. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and then, like, with most Diane Warren songs, or all Diane Warren songs, it's got these huge soaring vocals as the song reaches its climax, and Patty just, like, and slays the chorus like she reaches vocal heights that you know you're just like how do you to your point about clarity how do you hit these notes how do you project them with this amount of passion and emotion and be that clear mm-hmm. it's just it's it's awe-inspiring so it's not like this, uh christina aguilera where she pushes those high notes and you can hear her sphincter closing 
uh, or you could hear like her vocal cords shredding. Yeah. Like you just, you know, like you just feel them dying. Um, I guess your sphincter should remain closed. You can hear. <laughs> I would hope so. More you of might her sphincter end up closed, taken off across the room. If you didn't. But, <laughs> but you know, she, you know, at the, in the uh, several five years earlier, she'd ha- found success with a movie soundtrack, right? The Beverly Hills Cop. So, um, it was kind of a coup. Not only was this on her album, it was also featured under the closing credits for the James Bond film License to Kill. Um, Hmm. Gladys Knight did the theme song License to Kill for that album. And it's one of my favorite Bond songs. It's it's also still very much in this 80s diva, you know, sort of mid-tempo balance. Timothy Dalton. Oh my God, I don't even okay. Yeah, yeah. So so what's interesting is like the movie, it was not a huge hit. Okay. Not not I mean like for whatever reason, this song, so the song, it goes to, it's a top 10 R&B song, but it only hits number 79 on the Hot 100. Now, if you remember, the previous album goes to number one. The, the mm-hmm. lead single goes to number one on Hot 100. This doesn't even break into the top 10 of the adult contemporary. It kind of stalls at number 11. And so, you know, that affects airplay. It affects, like, how people see the album. It it really didn't do much. The, it, the al- it didn't move the album. Um and especially since the previous album had been platinum, like this just, I think it eventually went gold, but it took a long time. So this song, which if when you listen to this song, if you're thinking Cher, Taylor Dane, and Patty, uh, Tina Turner, this is, this song sounds exactly like these. There's no reason yeah. it shouldn't have been a success. It doesn't go, it doesn't cross over to pop audience. Diane um, Warren outselling the snake oil. <laughs> yeah. So the music video for this, you know, just as a as a as a side note, we'll post the video. There's I'll post two. There's a live version which I love, and then there's the music video, the the official music video, um, which is also great, mostly for her hair. But I, I was watching the video, and there's all these calla lilies, and I was like, why? Like that symbolizes death. So come to find out, Patty filmed the video the day after the funeral for her youngest sister. Mm-hmm. Um. She was the third of Patti LaBelle's sisters to die, and all three of the sisters died before the age of 44. Oh, wow. And Patti was about 44, I think, at the time. So mm. she filmed this video right after the funeral, and and she's dedicated, if you ask me to, to the memory of her sister. Um, all of her sister dies of cancer, and um, which is why she's in black. It's why she's singing in the church. It's why there are candles and calories, and it's why in many of the shots she's crying. Hmm. So it takes on like a, if you listen to the words of the song, you listen to her delivery and then you put it together with all of this, it really just changes it, right? Like it it hits differently. So the song, unfortunately, is not a huge hit for her. And she kind of goes back to the, goes back about her business. Um, She ends up getting like a TV, she's on some TV shows and things at this time. So she's keeping herself busy. Meanwhile, in 1992, Celine Dion releases her version of If You Asked Me To on her second self-titled album. And it's the second single off of this album following the first single, which was Beauty and the Beast with Peebo Bryson from the animated Disney film. Good old Peebo Um, Bryson, man. Peebo, man. I love Peebo Bryson's voice. Um, I love the name Peebo Bryson. (laughs) It's like... You know, speaking of soundtrack queens, like this is the first 
of of a, of of a run of songs on a soundtrack that Celine does. Beauty and the Beast, obviously, huge song, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it's it's basically Celine's breakout. Wins an Academy Award, wins a Grammy. She does. She then follows. So so people are like, whoa, who is this woman? Who's this voice? And then she releases the cover of it's If You Asked Me To. The song was recorded in a higher key, but features virtually the same vocal arrangement, the same musical arrangement. Like it is untouched from 1989, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's like she's Celine doing karaoke. Unlike Patty, this goes to number four on the Billboard Hot 100. It goes to number one on the adult contemporary chart. In her native Canada, it hits number one and becomes her first number one single as a, as a, as an artist. The album, propelled by the success of Beauty and the Beast and the song, it goes double platinum in the U.S. It sells five million copies worldwide. Um, it's the third single in the U.S. for Celine and you know, combined with, you know, Where Does My Heart Beat Now, which was her first single ever, or first English language single in the in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, you combine that, you combine Beauty and the Beast, and then you combine this song, If You Ask Me To. It really sort of cemented her arrival as a pop vocal powerhouse alongside Mariah and Whitney. Because in 92, Mariah had been out for two years, Whitney was doing her thing, and then here comes Celine, and she's blowing you know, blowing most other singers out of the water in this very, you know, it's, it, I think it's, I think it's safe to say that like the three of them, Whitney, Mariah and, and, uh, and Celine have this sort of, you know, when we talk about like scrubbed clean sort of pop, like, like these big soulful vocals, but that are like very like in a pop, like a clean pop arrangements. And, yeah. Like landscape, like they're the three. That you yeah. think of. I mean, right? it's funny. because sort of like, define the sound. Yeah. It's funny because back in that era, like, I I really couldn't distinguish, like, big voices from little voices. I don't know. Like, Oh. Well, yeah. You, know, you famously I think, I mean, liked and, and, uh, yeah, Paula, Paula Abdul. Abdul. <laughs> I mean, famously. <laughs> what did yeah, Whitney say about her? Whitney said, Mama, she's not even singing on key on the recording. <laughs> in the Whitney documentary, to go back to my D.D. D. Warwick, Whitney Houston documentary tirade there's a portion of that documentary where uh sissy houston calls janet jackson a bitch and then whitney goes on a tirade against paula abdul it's wild but um (laughs) but yeah i mean to your point like these big voices that were coming up doing these sanitized adult Mm -hmm. adult contemporary ballad type Mm -hmm. of songs i don't know that that ever really computed to me it's interesting. It wasn't until like almost like Titanic that I really ever thought of Celine Dion as like a huge powerhouse voice. You know? Really? Yeah. I mean, because um, God, what was that song that Celine Dion did for the uh, what was that? What was that movie? It was like 90, 95, 94, maybe. The <sighs> Because You Loved Me? The the yes the, from up close the one with Robert Whitf- Redford was it Robert Redford yeah it's like even I mean is her voice that big I guess it is that oh thing. my god I guess it is that thing that you're talking about with Patty Labelle where they as pop producers like they knew to start out restrained and keep it in the middle of their register until like the very end. I don't know. Celine's always been known as being sort of bombastic. And that was kind of a criticism about her that like, but not like, not in the way that like, again, 
to go back to Christina Aguilera, Christina Aguilera likes likes her vocals to be like an 11 from the beginning and yeah, throughout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Christina Aguilera famously, um, she was not into a lot of the songs they had her record for her first album because she didn't feel like they showcased her vocal range enough, right? She mm. just wants to belt from beginning to end. And I feel like a skilled songwriter and producer knows like you need to provide that arc mm-hmm. to your song. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think the I beginning mean, of any of these Celine Dion songs are particularly like big. I feel like when when you when you cut out okay, a Celine Dion song, you don't realize you're in trouble until about halfway through. <laughs> sometimes though, the first chorus though <laughs> can sometimes get you. Uh, especially well, I I would say especially the early ones. Okay. Because I feel like she was trying to break through. Because you yeah, have you need Whitney, to distinguish yourself. You have Mariah. And so here's now this other skinny white lady, you know, uh, from the north. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, she just kind of trying to show her chops, right? So this song, huge for Celine. I think most people, when you hear when you hear the beginning of this song and you hear the, the title, if you asked me to, you think of Celine Dion's version. <laughs> You know, Patty, you know, I've talked about this. She's she's respected for her longevity in the music business. Um, but her her recordings are not easily marketable as pro, you know, producers struggle to find a hit for the singer. And it's funny, I read I had read that line and I think about, well, why wasn't it easily marketable? Like why? Like her the you know, not like easily marketable to who well, I think is left out. I think um, that by the time that Patty LaBelle is breaking out on her own, there's not a formula for it, but she's also aging out of mm. being a fresh faced pop star, which I think mm-hmm. is very important to mm-hmm. the music industry. Unfortunately. Yeah. Well, but what's interesting in the eighties is that like they all sort of, I mean, they, they, you know, the, the different in different interviews, the the divas at this time all kind of bristled at it. But in the eighties, Tina Turner sort of led the way for a resurgence of like early forties aged R and B or soul sing or, or or female artists who had a who kicked off a second act that was very different. Right? You have Tina Turner, yeah. you have um, Cher. The, the, you know, and, and even, um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that in a, in a sexist way, mm-hmm. Tina Turner and Cher continued to be sex symbols throughout the eighties. Yes. Yes. And, and the other women kind of struggled. Yes. You're right. Like, like in the both way Aretha that, and, and Patty, like they, they've had maybe one good album in the eighties. But Patty LaBelle was oh. not a sex symbol. No. I never. think about and, Jennifer Lopez yeah. starting her pop career very late in her life. Very mm-hmm. late in her life. She was like 30. But, you know, for Jennifer Lopez or even Madonna, Madonna started mm-hmm. out when she was pretty, you know, advanced in years um, mm-hmm. by music industry standards. Mm-hmm. Um, their success, I feel, or the the willingness of the music industry to push them mm-hmm. relied upon their ability to retain a youthful sexy appearance yeah Yeah. and the rock rock the rock format really helped with that right you know and and Cher had always been sort of risque but like you know her writhing around on the guns was it the USS Iowa USS Missouri Mm -hmm. um for for the if if I could turn back time video in the fishnets like 
it's iconic. Like it was banned from MTV until yeah, after a certain her, time, right? Her so it's whole like, butt was out. Yeah, like it's 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 like there's that, and Tina always with her legs and just like she's gorgeous, and but like she did rock, and so that was sort of palatable. And like Patty, like going back to when she was like a bluebell, like the original manager sort of didn't want her to be the lead because he said she was too plain. Like you know, all the way back had 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 kind of been dissed for her looks, and and I you know she created a a look for herself, but and you know like as she struck out on her own, like from the time the mid seventies to like the the early eighties was was very difficult to sort of find a lane, find a way to market her to get that crossover success that they had felt once with Lady Marmalade, right? Yeah. Um. Patty's version of If You Ask Me To is generally considered, like, good R&B, but it's not, you know, outside of that, like, no one really thinks about it. It was sort of a middling, if unremarkable hit for her. And I just want to contrast that with Celine's version. And when Celine comes out, and again, listen to the two back to back, they are essentially the same song, right? Mm-hmm. Salon, uh, um, the the Jeff Edgers from Salon Magazine noted about If You Ask Me To, it works when reassessed, or Dion's moaning, pleading, screaming, take me vocals works when reassessed as a chunk of modern soul, as worthy as anything recorded by Whitney Houston or Mariah Carey. And the thing that stuck to me there, like he's kind of dissing her, but he's also saying it's modern soul. From Celine Dion. From Celine Dion. It is the same song. She, the vocal performance is the same as Patti LaBelle's. Yeah. Is Patti LaBelle's modern soul three years ago? No. No one cares, right? Like, so further, you continue to read, like, because again, this is Celine's second English language album. Amazingly, this was Celine's 11th studio album, her second English language. Well, because she was recording since the time she was like, what? She was like five. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, About.com placed the song, placed Celine's version of If You Ask Me To at number one in their ranking of top 10 Celine Dion songs, noting it as a big mid-tempo ballad. All Music senior editor Stephen Thomas Erlewine picked it as one of the standout songs together with Beauty and the Beast and Love Can Move Mountains on that album. Billboard magazine wrote that Dion, reinter- quote, Dion reinterprets Patti LaBelle's hit with highly positive results. He states that, quote, she proves she is on the road to developing a fine and distinctive vocal style. Um, the Dayton Daily News says the song is, quote, hauntingly beautiful. And... Um, I don't know what the, I don't know what this other this you know another critic <laughs> ends up saying that um Celine quote deserves all the accolades she's gotten the past few years and surely her rendition of this touching Diane Warren ballad takes her to a new level. And you think of this it is the same song. Again, Celine Dion at this time is a thin beautiful uh-huh. young white woman. Yes. Do you disagree with any of this? No. Well, I was I was <laughs> gonna say look, she she, she was looked, well because no because she's always talking about like, like looking one, like the a thin part. The no no no. Part? She's, she's always talked about looking like a vampire at this time. You know, like she hadn't like, but she'd gotten a lot of it fixed. But like she like she was working on her her image as well. Oh, but like yeah, she talks about that. But 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 her, true her, her true. Makeup like everything was like she yes. was being poised. She was being groomed. Yes. Groomed to be that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because to talk about how similar the production is on 
both of these songs aside from the key change Mm -hmm. and then the fact that Celine gets all these accolades that seem to be denied to Patti LaBelle and why that Mm -hmm. is to go Mm -hmm. back to the original conversation about the history of cover songs the Mm -hmm. cover songs that I was talking about had a lot to do with like either um changing the genre in order to appeal to broader markets or regionally doing these things to get records out to people in different parts of the countries in the 50s in to get the records out to different people in different parts of the country in like the 50s and 60s but um one of the more nefarious more insidious aspects of cover records is that idea that you could take almost the entire production Record labels might take the entire same band, the personnel, Mm -hmm. have them re-record it and then lay down a new vocal. And one of the examples that I was reading about was um, Laverne Baker, who was a soul singer from the 50s. She had some of her songs covered by a white artist named Georgia Gibbs in the Mm -hmm. 50s. And the songs were almost identical except for the vocal. And it seemingly mm-hmm. was done specifically just to take take away from a black artist mm. what they had achieved and just push it out to a market that would accept a white person, basically. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was funny because um, so this this black soul singer, Laverne Baker, um, she took out a hundred uh, she took out a twelve thousand uh, dollar life insurance policy on herself. And she named this white singer, Georgia Gibbs, as the sole beneficiary of this life insurance policy. And she she wrote in she wrote a letter attached to the policy that said, The policy is provided for her for her. Should she be deprived of the event of my untimely death, of the opportunity of copying my songs and arrangements in the future. <laughs> like masterclass in shade. <laughs> That's great. That's great. But I mean, it is that thing of like when a cover is made that is so close in Mm -hmm. sound and in time, it's hard to think of it as being anything but a little bit nefarious in in its intent. Well, and you know, so taking this out of the realm of just like conjecture, right? Like you could say, well, there's a lot of reasons that, you know, maybe you could come up with a lot of reasons, but why, why one would be successful and maybe not. And I, Patty, you know, Patty herself, so in the liner notes of her 1999 Greatest Hits album, um, she said, like, I knew the song was a hit when I recorded it, and I was happy that Celine did it and did so well with it. But the arrangements are so close, and we both have pretty powerful voices, so who knows why my version didn't take off? Maybe it was timing. So she's a little, you know, she's, she's, she, you can tell she's feeling it, right? Like, she she understands. And, 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 you know, as I kind of looked into this, I, I had never... I always suspected, like, to your point about conjecture and, like, you know, what's going on. Until I started digging, I didn't realize, like, so in the last 12 or 15 years, Patty's been a little bit more outspoken about this, about generally feeling underappreciated in the industry. Um, In 2007, she said, I always compare myself to Celine Dion and Barbara Streisand and Bette Midler, and I think my talent is as strong as theirs, but I'm a black woman. I get upset a lot because I know I'm good, right? And, And, you know, she's... I, I don't think she's wrong. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. you know, there's 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 differing levels. Like you think about them, they're all contemporaries. Um, you know, but Patty is like your black auntie, right? Like like she, there's a there's a there's a certain mode that she's put in. Um, she went even further in 2008. This interview that went online, um, 
in 2008 with the Monaco Review. And she blamed racism in the music industry, basically saying that the biggest difficulty of her career had been seeing Celine Dion zoom up the record charts with the same song for which she could not get sales. And she said, quote, people pay more respect to white artists who sing well before they do black women. Um, I've been singing for 45 years and that's an obstacle. I'm still, I'm getting over it because I'm fabulous. So you can beat, you can't beat me up. You can make me, you can't make me feel less than I am because whenever I get the microphone, I'm going to show you who I am. Um, you know, it was really interesting because (laughs) you were talking about music forums online. Mm -hmm. There was a Prince forum (laughs) where this, this, this question about like, you know, was Celine Dion stunting on Patti LaBelle when she did this? Basically, everyone there was like, yeah, she, I mean, there's a reason Celine's, there's no reason Celine's was better other than, you know, I mean, it's the same song. Like, the reception was different. You go to Celine Dion forum, and it's all people who are like, tired of the quote unquote racist card being played. This is why there's racism. They all have equal opportunities. And besides, like, this was in the era of rap music and Celine's was a blush, breath of fresh air. Like these weirdly like dog whistly like. Huh. All right. Like, like, but Celine, if you listen to the two of them, it's easy to see why Celine's was better. And you're like, I've listened to them both and they sound almost exactly the same. And actually, like I've come out on the side where like I love Patty's version because Celine's was the only one I had. And I think this is a criticism that Celine gets, has gotten and kind of continues to get. In many ways, Celine Dion replaces emo like like mi- like she replaces emotion with volume, mm-hmm. and so like just because you got louder and you hit these notes doesn't like help people feel anything better. You're not conveying the emotion of the song. Yeah, doesn't necessarily mean you're doing that. And you listen to Patty's version, and it is soulful in a way that someone like Patty Labelle can do. I mean, because I always had this question mark about Celine Dion, especially in her early days, because Mm -hmm. I feel like admittedly, like she didn't understand English that well Mm -hmm. early on. And with a lot of her early songs, again, to your point about volume equaling Mm -hmm. emotion, Mm -hmm. I was never entirely sure if Celine was really feeling her lyrics. Yeah, and she talks about that too. Like she, yeah, like it was hard for her to connect and I think people did comment on it. But to that point, I think that just, that reinforces the point that like she was literally mimicking Patti LaBelle's version. Yeah. Because how, if she couldn't really connect to the lyrics because of a language barrier, like she just followed it, which, so then why does, why do the critics then say that she's masterfully reinterpreted this and she's brought some new life to it when Mm -hmm. it's like, Okay, why are you saying that, right? And, you know, just last year, she kicked off a music festival in Brooklyn um, with If You Asked Me To. And she she kind of jokingly said, quote, I had the pleasure of hearing my good friend Celine Dion sing this song, but don't get it twisted. I sang it first. And <laughs> it's, it's you know, she always says my girlfriend, they're, they're, they're friends. Does you know, anyone like, ever really mean it when they say my good friend? I don't know. <laughs> I feel I like mean, if you have to call someone your good friend, you're maybe trying to say that you're, they're not your good friend. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think again, I think there's when we just, saw when we of... saw Brandy that time, and she yeah. referred to Moniker as Mon- Moniker. When we saw Brandy that one time, and we we and we saw her refer to Monica as her good friend, I was uh-huh. like, really? Is she? Yeah, they're really not good friends. Famously, not good friends. Have you have you talked to Monica since 1998? <laughs> I guess when they did that second second song together. But anyway, yeah. 
I, I mean, I, so I side eye the, the calling anyone your good friend. One of the main reasons that this came up for me this week that I wanted to talk about was I was listening to, or actually, to bring this full circle, Eric, our friend, was listening to the podcast, the New York Times podcast, The Daily, Mm -hmm. and um, had heard an episode where they talked about a Patti LaBelle song, and he messaged me to say I should listen to it because it gave him a greater understanding of patty and like of her songs and where she's coming from right and so i was like oh look at this look at this it he only took like what like 17 years <laughs> nine it was nine um i know right so so i went and i found this episode and you know it, it took place early this summer so like in the middle of the pandemic um you know in the middle of the the black lives matter um protests the the George Floyd the the protests and riots in 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 the aftermath of the George Floyd um, incident and Wesley Morris who's one of the critics at the New York Times he did an episode of the Daily and spoke with Patty about another cover of hers which or another song of hers which was a live cover of the song If You Don't Know Me by Now um, and the meaning that it had for him with the Black Lives Matter protests and kind of like. Basically, his take on it was, you know, the song is about like um, a man comes home late and his 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 lover or his partner is upset and is like accusing him of all of these things. And he's saying, if you don't know me by now, you will never know me mm-hmm. like I, I I didn't do any of these things you're accusing me of. And if you don't know me by now and he was and he was he was kind of taking that as like sort of a, a thing for like the black community. Like, you know, we get accused of all of these things. But if you don't know us by now. You'll never know us. And and he heard Patty's live cover of this um, on an album from the 80s. And he writes this, this, this essay in the New York Times, and Patty actually ends up calling him and to talk about it, to thank him and just have a conversation. So he records this conversation um, that took place in June, um, you know, to, for for the podcast. And you know, they're, they're, they start talking about, like, is there, he, you know, Wesley Morris asks Patty, like, is there music, um, like, what music does she listen to to, like, kind of take her out of the moment or, or like, to, you know, like, at, the, at this time, is there music that she finds helpful for herself? And she kind of talks about all these different kinds of things. Um, she loves, like, California Love. She loves 50 Cent, Bob Dylan. <laughs> she talks about all these different things. Um, but then she, she says, you know, I'm struggling being the black girl who sang quote, who sang, if you asked me to, but mine is not accepted the way my girlfriend's is. And Wesley says, so you're talking about your great version. If you asked me to the great song and Celine Dion sings it and it's a bigger hit. And she goes, "Uh uh-huh. And it's like that in all parts of my life. I have to work harder to be seen, to be seen, not even listened to. First, they got to see you and see if they want to see that black face or listen to that black lady's music. And then when they do, they compare and they take the other one instead of mine. And of course that hurts. And she's one of my best friends, but you know, it hurts. So it's a whole bunch of stuff. And she's, you know, he says, I know. And she says, you know, it's going on and on. I can't take it, but I take it. And I always smile. Mm -hmm. And just to have had that conversation, and I think to have that conversation now and you know, in 
the in 2020 when we're having these discussions about you know black lives matter and you know appropriation and and just different who gets credit right for things and um who gets listened to whose voice is the loudest yeah um who gets who gets um to be believed um it takes on a different meaning even about something like as as something as quote unquote small as a pop song Right. And you start to look at it. And that's why I was saying, like, you know, when they said, you know, Patty, you know, we just didn't know she was unmarketable. And it's like unmarketable to who? And she talks about it here. It's like, you know, I have to work harder to be seen. They have to see you. And if they want to see that black face or listen to that black lady, then they'll listen. But like you in order to break into pop, you have to be thinking about those things. You know, it's funny, you know, even just personally, when I. When I was younger and I had dreams of being a singer or just, I just wanted to be famous. That's what it was. Um, I used to think I'm going to change my name to just my first and middle name because I was like, there's never, no celebrity is going to have the last name Marcos. Like it's not going to, you know, no one's going to listen to me. And like, I didn't think about it as bad. I just thought about it as the reality. Right. And now I think about it. I'm like, fuck no. Like that's my family name. Like that's cool. God, you know when when we first met, and then um, my old roommate Carmina, mm-hmm. and then we were talking, and then she found out your last name, and she was like, "God, Filipino people must hate him." <laughs> you know what's really funny? So Filipinos in Hawaii, where I grew up, uh-huh. generally generally do not like Ferdinand Marcos. Mm-hmm. Filipinos in California like almost to a person are like, you must be very wealthy (laughs) or, or like I'd go to the airport and it's like a lot of Filipinos work at like the kiosks and the things in the airport. So I'd go and I'd try to buy a snack and a magazine or whatever. And they would see my, my card and they'd look at me and like, he was a good man. And I'm like, really? Like, I don't, I, and like, well, I mean, you know, you look at the Philippines now, I mean, even Imelda Marcos, she was able to like, yeah, remain relatively popular. It's just interesting because, like, I remember my grandma didn't really want. I mean, she she was sensitive about the name, you know. Mm. So, so like, I kind of internalized that, not fully understanding and not fully understanding the sort of dichotomy with there's layers, there's layers Filipino layers communities. To your last name. Yeah. So it's yeah. So that's interesting. But but you know, again, just being like, like it's not even just the song. It's just like people will look at something and be like, "That's black music." Yeah. Or that's world music or whatever, and just like. Take it out. And then you have, what does it mean when like the critics don't have any, don't understand the history of the music or the community that you come from. And so completely ignore your contribution. Like no one in those times was, or they they mentioned Patti LaBelle, but they're saying, oh, Celine has reinterpreted it. Yeah. Really? There was really? A, there like was as their, a music their critic? Own, there was their own bias yeah. standing in the way of hearing those two songs kind of objectively, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Patty, she touches in that last quote you were talking about, she touches upon the the multiple layers of things that there is, you know, a race aspect to it. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there's also an age and a look aspect to it for mm-hmm. her as well. Like mm-hmm. if they're gonna if they're gonna look at her and see a black woman, she better be young and sexy. Yeah. I mean, there's Which, you know, there's you know, there's the yeah, there's the Kelly and the Beyonce of it all. Yeah. Sometimes even, even when they're the same age. But even when I think when you look at, when you look at 
um, black singers that are successful in the soul genre, mm-hmm. there's less of that pressure put onto them. Yeah. Probably still yeah. that pressure, but I think about, you know, you think about like Angie Stone or Jill Scott yeah. and how by staying solidly in that lane, by yeah. not trying to appeal to anyone but their core audience, they're able to kind of, you know, to a smaller yeah. scale, but still well, yeah, be, so be authentically themselves and do the yeah. types of music that they they can and want to do, you know. What I yeah, what I was gonna say about that was like, yes, maybe less pressure and maybe there's some success, but like you don't get the bigger success. And and I think one of the other things that, you know, in the interview in 2007, where she talks about sort of being underappreciated and things, she talks about like it's it's sort of mentioned that like in the 90s, so in the 90s, after this song, after If You Ask Me To, doesn't really go anywhere, she ends up getting her first Grammy like a few years later um, for a, for an album called Burning Up. And um, it's a couple years after Celine's released her cover. It, it, it was, it's strange. Her first Grammy ends up being a tie. And you mentioned 20 Feet From Stardom. Mm-hmm. She tied with Lisa Fisher. Oh. Um, in 1994. Also profiled in that documentary. In 20 Feet From Stardom. Um you know, speaking of women who have a hard time sometimes breaking through, you know, not fitting the conventional mold of like what a singer's supposed to look like. But Patty in the 90s, she still releases music, but she essentially shifts modes. And she's diagnosed with diabetes. Well, she, she'd always loved cooking and, you know, and all of these things. She releases like five cookbooks, including one about diabetes. Like she becomes really known for her like sort of her non-music related things mm-hmm. like Patty's over the, over the rainbow Mac and cheese or Gichi Gichi Yaya gumbo. Right. Like she, she creates this whole other sort of line f- to have some sort of commercial success that's eluding her in the music industry. Yeah. And I don't think I ever put that together, but that, that was her lifeline. She tours relentlessly. Like that woman is still touring or she would be touring. She was touring through last year, but, um, you know, she's 75, but like, I did, I, I thought, oh, well, of course she has these, these things. She's a good cook, but it's like, oh, she did this so she can make money yeah. because she doesn't make money in like Celine Dion. They were, but what's crazy is the interview in 2007, where she first kind of t- digs into this, she was interviewed in Re- review Monaco or Monaco review. And the reason they were doing that was because the world music awards was held in Monaco that year. Mm-hmm. And um, Celine Dion was being honored with like a, a legend award for having sold 200 million albums in her career. And Patty was being honored at the same event for like her contributions to R&B. But like she said it, that's what hurt even more because she felt like the reason, part of the reason Celine has been propelled to mega stardom, like one of the, like consistently one of the wealthiest women working in pop music today yeah. every year year over year um is on the basis of a song that she couldn't get any sales out of and so it really i think as she gets older i think as you know all of this kind of winds down in a way um i think it stings a little bit it hits differently for her yeah and i'm glad she's talking about it because again taking it out of the realm of conjecture and really placing it in the context i mean it's got to um, be kind of weird for her that probably within the last decade 
her biggest claim to fame is a viral video about her sweet potato pies that were selling at Walmart. Yeah. Yeah. That that yeah. for a lot of people, maybe the only way that they actually know who Patti LaBelle is. Mm-hmm. I mean, and dancing in, with the stars or in whatever, the way that, she, you know, these things, you know, in the, I mean, in the way that Dionne Warwick was doing infomercials in the nineties and the way that Cher mm-hmm. was doing infomercials in the nineties, like, you know, to talk about, you know, your brand or whatever, Mm-hmm. doing that stuff because you need to do it or whatever at the time, it's interesting how it can impact your legacy for yeah. generations to come, you know? Yeah. 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 Anyway. So, yeah. So, I, you know, end of the day, give Patty, LaBelle. Patty LaBelle's, if you ask me to a listen, um, if it doesn't move you, get out. Yeah. <laughs> Just leave. Her voice soars. <laughs> Her voice soars. All right. It's amazing. So we had a lot to unpack today. So many, we did. so many avenues explored. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. I think I think we, we I think we've covered the gamut of everything that a cover song can imply or mean uh-huh. in relationship uh-huh. to the original. Be it nefarious, be it innocent, be it well, and an I do, improvement, I, I, yeah. be it you know not an improvement you know there's there's so many different things to dig into um with cover songs and i think that um it it was it was really interesting to me to look at that history of like why cover songs exist Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i want to be clear too like i love celine dion and so like i'm not i I, you know and, and i love linda ronstadt and i think it's not always the case of the actual singer who has any sort of nefarious purpose. Like, you know, there's a lot of people involved. It's a system. And that's what I wanted to kind of highlight. I think that's what we both wanted to highlight that there's, there's a system involved here. It's not any one thing. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's one of the things that makes it makes sexism. It makes racism so insidious is that it's not, it's not the actions of any one person that are making these things happen. Right. It's, it's not even the f- individual fault of a singular a singular person in charge of any of these decisions. It's like on the ground level, the things that we as fans are responding to are responsible for decisions that people at the top are making. And then anyone below them is also complicit in like supporting that decision with data. And so mm-hmm. everyone is complicit in their own way. Yeah. And that's why when it comes to these issues, I always like to think of like, yes, we can we can hold our leaders' feet to the fire, but we also need to understand how we as individuals are complicit in like the cloud of decisions that our society is making yeah. as a whole. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like it's 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 literally the it's literally Meryl Streep's Miranda Priestley monologue from The Devil Wears Prada, where Andy her blue belt. Uh, yeah, the blue belt <laughs> thinks that it has, she's like, oh, you think this has nothing to do with you? And you're, she walks through, swear. like, <laughs> all of these things have been, these choices have been made for you. And then by the time it gets to you, like, you choose this and you think you've just, like, yeah. happened upon it. It's a system. Like, there's 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 all these different parts. And then we, you know, we put, we're, as consumers, I think, um, it, it behooves us to kind of educate ourselves on, like, why 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 we get presented things just to think more critically yeah 
And I think it, behoo- it behooves us to think critically, but continue to participate. I think that there's, yeah. it's very tempting for me to think critically, get overwhelmed and then disengage. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what I'm realizing more and more is like, it's very important to, to not disengage. Yeah. I mean, and in this case, all you have to do is open your Spotify stream Patty LaBelle's if you ask me to like I did like a million times this week or just go on iTunes buy it for $1.99 put that penny in her pocket Mm -hmm. and uh, if enough people do that she'll have a nice summer (laughs) we can be like when Mariah when they saved Mariah's glitter yes let's get it trending hashtag justice for if if you ask me to um All right, okay. so I think we're running out of time. Yeah. So that should take care of us for this week. Yeah. Um, thank you for thank you for your contribution. I, I enjoyed this topic. Um, we want to give a special thanks. Yeah, let's wrap it up. And we'll see you guys next week. Uh, special thanks to Adam Elder for composing our theme music. As we've mentioned multiple times, songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website, flopredeemer.com. Um, in many cases, they're also posted to our socials. So remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And check us out on social at Flop Redeemer on Instagram and Twitter and at facebook.com slash Flop Redeemer. 